Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Paul Moringer. Paul is a contributor to the Hardball Times and the creator of the Pyramid Rating System. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you very much, Ross. Pleasure to be here. I always ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. I've been a baseball fan for about as long as I can remember. Ever since I was about two years old, I remember being very young and my favorite player from when I was little, little was actually Jose Canseco. I just thought just kind of just... I know he hit a lot of home runs and he had long hair and it just seemed like a cool guy. Um, Later on, obviously, find out a little bit more. That kind of changed over time. Uh, Once the ball hit him on the top of the head, I think I was seven, he kind of became from a cool guy, just kind of a cartoon character almost for me. But um, as I got older, um, was a huge Met fan growing up, still am. My favorite player, kind of as I was becoming adolescent, would be Todd Hundley, actually, with the Mets. Um, We're going to talk about your creation of the pyramid rating system. You have changed the system to a graded rating system now. But before we get into the grading and why you changed it, tell me a little bit about the original pyramid rating system and what you were hoping it would accomplish. So it's not a new concept to come up with a ranking system that tries to go in and rank every single major league player in history, one through however many players there have ever been in history. I was working on it for about five years until I kind of had my eureka moment. The main the main thing that this differs in versus every other system is, is that this system does not take into account career stats at all. It is simply a season by season breakdown. And the reason that is, is because one of the things I've noticed of pretty much every kind of, you know, Jaws especially, I think, which is I kind of I refer to it as Jaws on a as kind of Jaws on a career scale where Jaws kind of looks at that and has kind of this, you have a seven-year peak, and then it looks at, you kind of averages out the rest of your war in combination with that. This doesn't have, there is no peak versus career. It's just every season basically gets treated as exactly the same, and we just kind of, and your lump sum at the end, that's where you end up with. And the reason why I think a lot of people kind of struggle with that lump sum factor is because they're looking at too big of a picture. What this does, it just looks at season by season, boom, 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 let's rank them all out, let's put them all in a nice, neat order, and when we fit them along this curve, which is another aspect I do, I don't necessarily, the way it works is that no matter any kind of year you go through, the difference between the best player and the worst player relatively is always going to be the same. And that's kind of a different concept from war, which is a great, which is a fixed number it could be 14.78 one year. That could be the best year. If next year could be nine, that could also be the best year. This system would basically treat them almost as exactly the same level in terms of how good in terms of how good the seasons were. There may be like an A double plus to an A plus difference, but that would be about it. Pretty much every every season, if you go through in Major League history, is going to have roughly the same ratio of A double plus seasons, A plus A, A minus seasons, B plus B, B minus, all the way down to F. And what that does is it, it allows every season to be graded equally to each other. No one season or no one error in history is going to have that much more an advantage over another error. And one of the things I like is going through my ranking system. You can go through it and see it's all over the place. I don't like systems where I can just look at the rankings and I can tell I can probably tell you what year the person who did it was born in just because there's all these guys from the 60s or there's too many players from the modern era. This kind of hits all over the place, and it really tries to represent each era equally. So just to clarify, 
There were some years where there were not 10-win seasons, where sometimes the league leader in war has an 8-win season. And in those particular years, let's say that the top four finishers in war might be 8, 7, 5, 7, 5, 7. You would grade those the same as in a year where you have three 10-win seasons and a 9-win season. For the most part, in general, yeah. It would depend on a lot of other factors, how many players were around or how many players were active in the league. Um, like a modern season is going to have more A-plus seasons than a season from the 1960s, but that's only because there's more players now. The ratio itself never changes. And where did you establish the baseline ratio from? What I try to do is I base it on three, st- on three standards, your total war, what I would consider your war for plate appearance or your war for innings pitch if you're a pitcher. That's basically just how effective are you in just kind of like a one at bat or one game situation. And the third thing I bring is durability. And I actually will grade guys on just the amount of games they played in and the amount of plate appearances you have. The theory I have with that is there, I think there's actually a little bit of a hidden value in kind of the amount of games you're playing in. In my theory, you're actually preventing a worse player from coming on, onto the field. And to me, there is a, there is a value to be captured in there that I don't think the, I don't think work necessarily captures on its own. So those are the three things I look at, and they're all rated equally. It's just standard deviation divided by average. If I total up everyone's kind of score over that, the total number of each season, would it would all equal zero. There wouldn't be any difference. And then based on that number, we just kind of plot it along the curve, and we just see where guys end up. And if, what you're specifically referring to as far as like guys you know, with very low numbers in terms of leading the league in war, that would refer a lot to kind of the early 20th century. Someone, so someone like Ross Barnes, he wouldn't rank at all really on Jaws, but on my system, he comes... Let me look him up real quick. Ross Barnes, by the way, for people listening, was a second baseman very early on in the 1870s. From my system, he would rank in at actually number 57 all-time as the greatest player. On Jay Jaffe's war system, he would rank in at 573. So that would be probably your biggest difference as far as where we disagree the most. But this is, again, but it's also becoming, if I go back to 1871, Russ Barnes only played in 30 games that year. So in a sense, I mean, when discussing guys all time, I would look at a person like Barnes. I more or less toss him out just because I don't necessarily think he's even playing the same game. I mean, I mean, I don't even think this was the mound that you're about 45 feet away from home plate. So, but it just kind of showed. But I use that just kind of as an example, just to kind of show what it is I'm dialing in on and what what this is looking for, which is basically just trying to pull out the greatest players in each and every era. And you changed the pyramid style to a like a traditional letter grade style. Tell me why you made that change. The first reason, well, originally going back to when I started out with the pyramid system, I tried to match up to what traditional MLB scouting have, like a two to eight grading system. And that was, again, kind of because the war itself, it doesn't have any actual value to me. It's just however that overall rating is. Just And I would go through, you know, an 80 season would still equate to an A double plus now, 79, 78, 77. Those will be A plus seasons. But initially, the reason I changed it was because I've always struggled with trying to understand differences between, you know, how does a five war player compare to a four war player? I'm really not sure what that difference is. And the same thing was kind of going on here. Like I would have one person coming as like a 72 and another person coming as 67. I don't really kind of it's kind of a little tricky for me to understand the difference. But when you assign grade numbers to them, I don't know, just for some reason, everything, it just kind of inherently clicks. I could take this to a, to someone that doesn't even know sabermetrics 
and they can just look at and say, okay, this guy has six A-double plus seasons, four A-plus seasons, and you can just look at it right like, oh, that's a Hall of Famer right there, and you'd be right in that. So the, so the initial idea was to make the system a lot easier to read and to understand. But then the second part of it was to try to bring over it and try to look at more war in terms of terms how I think it should be viewed, which the stat is an estimate. It's not an absolute value. And what this does is it kind of allows kind of that freedom to where, okay, we look at one guy with a 5.6 war, another guy with a 5.3 war, assume the number of games played, the number of seasons played, all that. It's very much the same player, and that's and that's what this brings in. It kind of you know it kind of puts guys in the buckets. You're still going to have a little bit of crossover. I mean, at some point you still you're always going to have to make a cut. Where it's like, okay, I'm sorry, you know, the 5.6 guy is a B, the 5.559 guy he is a B minus. But whereas before it was always kind of making these cuts and treated as an absolute value, this I think dives a lot more into like, okay, let's actually be a lot more general with kind of how good players are. We don't necessarily need to get into an argument of who had the greatest season of all time, the second greatest, the third, the fourth. We can just look at, okay, we know these seasons are great. We know these seasons are very good. We know these seasons are good. Let's just add them up together and just and see where we come up with. And that's what this does here. And when you go in kind of that more general approach, I actually think the results get a lot more accurate. And one of the things I was struggling with, too, is trying to – everyone says, you know, I'm not a slave to war. I don't want to treat war as an absolute. It's very difficult to take that approach if you're trying to do something as precise as trying to rank players of all time. You know, it's, it kind of gets in the, you know, I know war – you know, you don't want to get into a situation where, you know, one guy's 5.9, another guy's 5.7, and, you want, and it's like I'm not saying that guy's better, but he's better just because I have to make that difference at some point. This kind of allows a lot more openness for that. And if people are thinking, well, it's going to guys are going to have similar careers. The first I mean, the first thousand or so guys I have top ranked all time. None of them. None of those players. No two players have any two seasons that are careers that are exactly the same where they have the exact same number of A double plus seasons, A plus A, A minus, B plus B. You still get a lot of variety even going into those groupings. So you can still draw a lot of conclusions and really make some and make a lot of things that whereas before I think it would require a lot of math and kind of finagling and understanding, this I think makes it a lot easier for a layman to understand it and a lot easier honestly even for me to pick up on. And just kind of explain it. And I think that's – and that is the main reason – and that's what I'm really trying to get this system to do, hopefully, is try to make sabermetrics a little bit more – a little bit more palatable and easy to understand for people just coming in. Because I I know – I remember back in high school trying to learn this stuff, and it took me about 10 to 12 years to even get to a point where I even felt comfortable with it. And so I can only imagine someone who has no background at all – in this in this type of field and really trying to dive in you know what's war what's you know what is jaws what's vorp i mean even ops was something that took a while for people to come around on the idea of and so what i'm trying to do here is just try to make just simplify it make it some make it palatable but at the same time we're still holding up all the sabermetric principles it's still solid if you compare my rankings to what jay Jaffe has with his draw with his jaws rankings it'd be probably 90 percent similar well, I want to talk about your overall leaderboard. These are the best players ever, and these are all familiar names in a slightly different order. But the top of your pyramid is uh, Ruth Bonds, 
Mays, Cobb, Speaker, Walter Johnson, Lefty Grove, Ted Williams, Hannes Wagner, Roger Hornsby, Roger Clemens, A-Rod Mantle. No real surprises there, but the guy who's right after Mantle at this point is Mike Trout. Now, I think we all know that Mike Trout is on a historic pace, but you already have him. What is that? 14th all-time ahead of Mike Schmidt, Lou Gehrig, Hank Aaron, Stan Musial, Albert Pujols. Those are the guys immediately below Mike Trout. Now, I mean, I guess the obvious question is, why is Trout so high? Well, this gets into the real fundamentals of what the pyramid system is trying to is trying to get into, which is what actually makes a team great. And what this is and one of the things this is dialed in on is the league baseball. It actually seems a lot more. The sport itself seems a lot more akin to the NBA than the NFL, whereas if you actually get just get two or three superstar players on your roster your chances of winning the World Series, they go up drastically. So, and even more so when you look at an elite player like Mike Trout, who has, he has five A double plus seasons under his belt. I only have 208 of these in Major League history. So he himself has more, has about 2%. So who are the other names that have at least five double A plus seasons? Ruth, Bonds, Mays, Cobb, Walter Johnson, Lefty Grove. And that's it. That's the list. No one else has it outside of Trout. And all those players I just mentioned, they're all in the top 10. So if Trout has another A-double-plus season, which is likely, he probably will move up a ranking or two, but he's not going to shoot up to, you know, number one where Babe Ruth is, who has 10 A-double-plus seasons. But the reason this values A-double-plus season so highly is because anyone, any team with an A-double-plus player on their roster they have a 25% chance of winning the World Series, knowing even nothing at all at all about them. But if your best player becomes an A-plus season, that 25% goes down to about 15%. Now, it could be just because there's only 208 of these seasons in Major League history, and it's a little bit of sample size error. But just going through it, but I don't necessarily see any kind of drop-off with just anything else like that. And if you go through the names of who has the A-double-plus season, it is grossly disproportionately associated with teams that have gone to the World Series, teams that have Hall of Fame players. And so if you believe that, yeah, if I have the best player on my team, that gives me a 25% chance of winning the World Series, then someone like Mike Trout, yeah, that's the guy you want to get on your team. If I have this guy, that's the best – That's gives me the best odds. Just sign Mike Trout, and that, that is the best, most productive thing a team can do to go out and win a World Series. Well, except the Angels, of course, have never won a World Series. They've only made the playoffs once during this during Trout's reign here. And I think that number actually is skewed by the Yankees in particular. It's much harder to win a World Series now than it was in the past. And when the Yankees had Babe Ruth, it was easier to win the World Series, not just because there were fewer teams, but because the level of competition across baseball wasn't as equal as it is now. Players were restricted. Babe Ruth putting up those monster seasons on those great Yankee teams, well, of course, they were more likely to win. But Mike Trout putting up these monster seasons there's no way that a great player now because even just look at Trout alone he has five of those seasons and no World Series that's not 25 percent 25 percent for a modern player to win no matter how great their season in seems like a like a big stretch it does and it's something I'm going to be monitoring over time just to see if there's anything that changes I mean just going back to last year I gave away there were four seasons that were a double plus Trout was one Jacob DeGrom had the had another. Aaron Nola was the third. And the fourth one was Mookie Betts, who went on to win the World Series. If you go to 2017, only one player got one, Corey Kluber. If you go back to 2016 and look and see what you have again, we have Trout and Betts. 
So the percentages do seem to be dropping a little bit recently. But again, I I kind of it's very difficult to kind of look into like any kind of once because any kind of year you're going to look up. It's only going to be there's never going to be any more than maybe two or three A double plus seasons associated with any season. A lot of seasons don't even have any. I think that it is it is jarring as someone that has looked at career leaderboards my whole life to see Trout already ahead of Aaron. It is something worth questioning, and I think Trout's really, he's breaking every single model we're coming up with. And yeah, Aaron himself, he has the most, he is the highest ranked player of any player who doesn't have any A-double-plus seasons. He has 14 A-plus seasons. So, and he comes in at 17 all-time. He's ranked, he's sandwiched right in between Lou Gehrig and Albert Pujols. Actually, yeah, actually, uh, Lou Gehrig and uh, Stan Musial is 18. Sorry about that. But I think, but I think it's going to be interesting to see where really, how this Pretty much where it puts Trout all time. There is no player with a career like Mike Trout who has been has this many great seasons over this short of a time period where we've been actually looking where we're also in a sabermetric age where we can actually, okay, where is this guy actually rank all time? Where is he factor in? All this and all, you know, all that fun stuff. And yeah, Trout has, you know, how much how much value does that A double plus really give you over that A plus? I think that is the entire argument where Mike Trout comes down to. And again, it, it may be something that changes over time. As more and more seasons come in, I think this system may adjust it. Where you actually, in a couple of years' time, you actually may see if there was another Mike Trout, you probably will see him kind of drop down a little bit. But one thing, one thing this tries to factor in on above all else is outliers. And these are the guys who have the most A double plus seasons outliers, at least at the top of the rankings. As you go down, it kind of changes. It becomes more of a career focus. We're not there's really no more A double plus players, but there are but there's not as many A plus seasons or A seasons. So if one person, let's say like a Ted Abernathy, if he has one just great A double plus season that's off the charts, but not a lot to support that, he's not going to be rated as highly as someone who has a lot of other who has a lot of seasons that are kind of in that A A minus range. Whereas if you look at here, the number of years you play actually don't mean as much. I want to ask you how the system handles relievers. What it does for relief pitchers, it treats it tries to put them on kind of an equal footing as starters. I think one of the downsides of war is that it really underest it really underscores the value of what I think relievers bring to the table and really modern day starters as well, because I think so much of it is based on just historical precedents where guys are throwing 300, 400 innings, and that just doesn't happen anymore. And so to expect a player to – so to kind of look at it as kind of we're expecting a player to do this, I don't think it's very accurate. But every relief pitcher, it, every season, it's kind of very similar to hitters. It's all graded on just how good were you relative to the other relievers in your league. So if you had an ERA of let's say like 1.84 and 75 as Goose Gotchas did – that would actually grade a lot better than someone who had the same ERA and now because there's more guys with that kind of that dominance factor as well. Same thing goes with durability, innings pitch, games, the games, the games pitched in ratio. That's also factored. If you have if you're a reliever that has 80 or 90 innings pitched and let's say it's 1980, it's not going to grade as well as it does as it would in 2000, 2005. And I think what that allows to do, the, the error adjustment, it's automatically built in. You don't have to go in and try to figure, well, you know, he played in this era, so we should probably bump up his war by, you know, 10 or 20, whatever, versus this guy. Well, he kind of had a lot of innings pitched, so you really can't factor that in. And so, and with regards to pitchers, the rankings are wildly different from Jay Joffe Jaws system, but it's still that kind of that same, 
It's I think it's extremely well-rounded. If I go to just see who I have all time in terms of relievers, Mariano still comes in at number one. He's 66. Number two is Hoyt Wilhelm. He ranks at 169 all time. So it's actually a pretty big drop off. Number three is actually pretty surprising. That would be Kent Tacolve, who comes in at 223. Goose Goshes is 264. And then Dan Quisenberry, 364. Suter. And then we kind of all, you know, Mike Marshall, Joe Nathan, Keith Folk, they're all kind of lumped into the same group. So with relievers, there's some difference there. And when you gave those rankings there, 66, 169, that's among all pitchers? That's amongst every player. You have Mariano Rivera ranked as the 66th best player ever? Yep. Uh, For pitchers, he's actually 22nd. I want to ask you about Kurt Schilling. I'm going to ask you about a couple guys on the Hall of Fame ballot coming up this year. Uh, Jeter's the newcomer that we'll get right in. There's no debate about Jeter. I want to ask about some of the more controversial figures. Larry Walker's coming up on his last year on the ballot. He's someone who's war and wins above average, and Jaws all says he comfortably belongs. What does your system say? I have Larry Walker ranked 134th all-time and amongst position players, 93. Now, to give you kind of an example where that would rank all-time amongst Hall of Famers, Nolan Ryan would be 132, Tony Gwynn's 133, Craig Biggio is 135, and Billy Williams is 136. So this would basically set all five of those guys relatively equal to one another. According to this, Walker should be in easily. When it comes to Kurt Schilling... He's arguably the best player, aside from Barry Bonds, who's currently not in the Hall of Fame. I have him, or Roger Clemens, I should say, for that matter, too. I have Kurt Schilling ranked all-time as 49, and in terms of pitchers, he actually ranks 16th all-time, which is extremely high. And again, to give you an example of who, kind of who that's around, Mike Messina, who just got in, he's 14 all-time. Burt Blylevin's 15. Schilling is 16. Steve Carlton's just behind him at 17, and this is probably going to change at the end of the year, but because I only go through 2018, Justin Verlander's 18. And where's Halliday? Halliday is 21. And I think Halliday going in and Musina going in will all but guarantee Schilling going in as well. I want to ask you about Omar Vizquel. He's a guy that doesn't do well in war, doesn't do well in Jaws. Does he get pummeled here as well? For the most part, he does. Um, all time, he's ranked at 548, which is pretty far outside the argument of what I would consider to be a Hall of Famer. That's what's known as the Harold Baines Hall of Fame. He's way better than Harold Baines, actually. Yeah, Harold Baines actually comes at 755. So Vizquel is over 200 spots ahead of him. I have Omar Vizquel at 548 all-time. Not that far behind him, I have Aramis Ramirez at 551. And I don't see anyone making the case for Aramis Ramirez being a Hall of Famer. Bobby Bonilla is another guy right around him. He's number 542. Right ahead of Vizquel at 547 is Doug DeCensus. That's good. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of Hall of Fame buzz around Doug DeCensus. I want to go over uh, quickly before we wrap it up. What are the 10 best individual seasons ever? And then I want to narrow that down to the 10 best in the expansion era. I think Babe Ruth's 23 season would obviously come in. That's very high. Barry Bonds' 2002 season would probably come in not far behind it. Pedro's 2000 season is one that ranks pretty high up on the list. That may be, that's arguably the best season of all time, honestly, even just going by both pitchers and players' standards. Ruth's 1921 season is very high on the list. Carl Yastrzemski's 67. And actually, Mookie Betts' 2018 season actually came in really. That's almost a borderline top 10 season along with, right there with probably Hornsey's 1924 season. Very cool. And just out of curiosity, do you do anything with World War II? Do you handle that differently with players who had some of their career interrupted by World War II? 
No, I do not. And this is and that is but at that in is itself a decision because if you look at where the average ranking is all time, if you go to like 1942, 43, 44, and 45, you will see the average ranking just dip down drastically where players came in. Then it picks right back up again in 46. And the reason for that is, like you said, World War II. It just I do not adjust. I do not try to predict where guys would end up out if they had tried to play in more. So this hurt guys like DiMaggio. It hurts guys like Williams. But it really hurts even more so the guys who are kind of down kind of further down on the list, like Preacher Rowe, I think, is one guy who really missed a lot of years. I think he could have picked up his ranking a lot more had he pitched in there. But for the most part, no, this makes a concerted effort to try to – it doesn't necessarily – I can't treat every error fairly, but I can treat every error consistently, and that's what this aims to do. You've been listening to Paul Moringer. Paul is a contributor to Hardball Times. You can give him a follow on Twitter at P. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you very much, Ross. It was a pleasure being here. 